0: I believe in the, in the time that I've been away, Pastor Glenn has continued to lead you through this letter to the churches in Galatians, and you have waded through some very strongly theological sections there where Paul goes through his argument um, about uh, the law versus grace, God's grace. And today we come to the central section in that letter. And as we do, we've kind of reached something of a bridge. A bridge that links the two key themes in that book. And on one side of this bridge, we have the law, which is what we've been talking about for the last, I don't know how many weeks. And on the other side of the bridge, we have the spirit. And that will be increasingly the focus of this um, latter part of this letter to the churches in Galatia. And these are two different ways that God has chosen to reveal his will to humanity, the law and the spirit. And the link between them is Jesus. Jesus fulfils the law and he sends us his spirit. Now in ancient times, God gave his people the law and it was recorded for them in the the Torah. And if you were obeying the law, then you were walking in God's will. That was how you knew what God's will was. Uh, He'd given it to you as the law and as long as you were obeying the law, then you could consider yourself to be walking in God's will. The trouble was, of course, that people had a lot of trouble doing that because uh, of their sinful nature. They lacked the power to fully obey the law. And so we entered into this cycle of continually trying to live up to the standard of the law because of sin, failing to meet that standard, and then offering of sacrifices to God for our sin and so it continued. More attempts to meet the law, continually failing to meet the law, more sacrifices needed. And so people became slaves to the law. They were slaves under the law because they were always striving to meet the law and never really fully able to do that, constantly falling short. Now, on the other side of this bridge, The means by which we know God's will today is by his spirit in the lives of believers. His presence in their lives replaces the old sinful nature with a new spiritual nature. We take on that nature of Jesus and as we do, we take on something of his character instead of lacking the power to obey and continually falling short, we begin to produce in our lives something of the character of Jesus, some of the characteristics of his life. And the Bible calls those characteristics the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And the bridge by which we cross over from being slaves to being free from being controlled by this sinful nature to being having a, a spiritual nature, the means by which we move from lacking the power to obey to being more and more like Christ and producing more and more of this fruit in our lives, that bridge is through our sonship. And that comes about through our faith in Jesus. Now this issue of sonship is critical in this letter to the churches in Galatia. It is the pinnacle of Paul's argument. So we need to pause at this point in the letter and understand what sonship is really all about. Now our passage for today begins, In Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptised into Christ have put on Christ. Now there's two key words in those verses that are very important for us to understand. If we don't understand them, the best case scenario is that we won't appreciate the true wonder of what Paul's trying to say here. The worst case scenario is that we will completely misrepresent what he's trying to say here. So we're gonna spend some time, in fact, quite a bit of time, just on two words today from our whole reading. The first of those is sons. Now, many people today object to the Bible's use of the word sons when it's referring to all believers. And they do so on the basis that we should be more inclusive, we should use more inclusive language and that by using the word sons we're excluding 50% of the population, the, the women. So we often see alternative translations. So. Uh, original uh, NIV with or a 1984 version of the NIV used sons. You are all sons of God. 2011 revision of the NIV and a number of other uh, versions have changed that word to children. You are all children of God. Presumably in, the, in a bid to be more inclusive. Other versions use sons and daughters. So children is the most popular Others use sons and daughters. They're all trying to do the same thing. Now, I'm all for being inclusive, but you have to be very careful going through the Bible with a broad brush, changing words, just because our modern culture thinks that's the better way of doing things. Sometimes you're going to miss the point entirely if you do that, and I think this is one of those examples where by changing sons to something else, you completely miss the point of what Paul is trying to say here. In verse 28 of chapter three, he emphasizes that there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. His use of the word sons, later on, is not an example of gender exclusive language that needs correcting because it's an offence. All the way through, he's arguing there is no male and female. So for him to say that you are all sons, This is actually one of the most radically inclusive statements, perhaps in all of the Bible. No woman at the time would have taken any offence to it, but maybe some of the men might have. Because what he's saying here is there is no male and no female. All of you are sons. And that was important because to be a son at that time was to have a very privileged status, a status that was not available to women. Daughters had no right to inherit property. Daughters could not be heirs. Only a son could legally be an heir. So far from this being a sexist or exclusive statement, Paul's use of the word son here in verse 26 together with the word heir in verse 29 is a very radical statement of inclusivity. You are all sons through faith in Jesus Christ and you lose that sentiment when you try and sanitise this passage for modern language. And you might say, well, that was back then. Men and women today are equal. And certainly in some countries, they are more equal than others. But there are plenty of places in the world today where men and women are not equal. And even today, you don't have to go very far to see instances of just this type of imagery that Paul was putting forward in this argument. Consider Princess Anne. Second born, and therefore second in line to the throne of the British kingdom. That was until her mother decided to have another couple of children, and they happened to be male. So what happened to Princess Anne? She got bumped to the end of the line. Why? Because she was female and females did not have the right to succession that their male siblings did. And then her brothers, her older brother had some children and the younger brother had children and the children had children. And what happened to Princess Anne? She had to fall in line behind all of them. Even her younger brother's children came before her. And if you look at uh, Lady Louise Windsor, she's down right down the end there. She's four years older than her brother. She's not that old at all, she's still a young lady, she still had to fall in line behind her younger brother because of these rules of succession that were part of the British, or the United Kingdom monarchy. In actual fact, Charlotte is the only one to whom these rules do not apply because in 2011, um, the laws of succession were changed in England to make males and females equal in terms of succession. So although she is only very young, I'm not quite sure how old she is, maybe 10 or something like that, she's the first female monarch to be considered equal to her brothers in terms of succession. So all of this was very much how the United Kingdom and many other kingdoms within the world operated even within our own lifetimes and what paul presents is a radically different approach that is taken within the kingdom of god in god's kingdom no divisions there's neither jew nor greek slave nor free male nor female all are one in christ jesus because all are sons of god through faith in jesus christ now the second word that we need not to hurry over is this word baptised. It appears in verse 27. Now, this particular verse is often used as a proof text by those who would like to argue that in order to be saved, you need to be baptised. Now. If you want to teach that, then you have to believe either that water is the means that God uses to save people, or at very least, you have to believe that grace alone is not sufficient to save people. Something else is required, namely baptism. And hopefully, having spent the last five or six weeks deeply embedded in this letter to the churches in Galatia, having seen the Apostle Paul rile against the Judaizers who said that something else was needed, namely the law in their case, and rile against the people of Galatia who were accepting this kind of teaching, hopefully, you can see why it is just not comprehensible that Paul would make the argument that something else, namely baptism now, is needed. He tells his readers, you are all sons of God. How are they all sons of God? Well, his consistent argument up until this point has been through faith in Christ that's all that is required. And so it makes zero sense at this point for him to add this caveat that baptism is required because it goes against the grain of everything else in this whole letter. So what does he mean here at this point? In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith, for as many as you as we're baptised into Christ, have put on Christ. Well, the word baptism, baptizo in Greek, means to immerse. Bapto means to dip quickly. If you dip something quickly, bapto. If you immerse it, baptizo. And the best example that I have been able to find that explains the differences between these two words and helps us to understand what Paul is talking about here comes from an ancient recipe for making pickles. And it was found in a text by a Greek poet and physician by the name of Nicander from 200 BC. This recipe has been preserved for us that amount of time now the recipe requires step one that you bapto you dip the cucumbers in boiling water step two is that you baptize them baptizo them in the vinegar solution step one is temporary at the end of step one the cucumber remains a cucumber. Step two brings about a permanent change. The vegetable absorbs that vinegar solution. It takes it into itself and it's forever changed. You can't go back to being a cucumber. It's never going to taste like a cucumber again. It's a pickle. And it's going to taste forever more like a pickle. When the word baptizo, this word baptizo, is used in the New Testament, more often than not, it refers to our union with Christ than it does to water baptism. So it's about being immersed. In Christ, united with Christ, so that you are forever changed. You take on the characteristics of Christ. That is the sense in this verse from Mark's Gospel, Mark 16, 16. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved. Doesn't mean that you have to be baptized in water to be saved. Means you have to be immersed in Christ, united with him, so that you take on his characteristics. Whoever does not believe will be condemned. Condemnation comes through not believing, not through not being baptised in water. And it's the same sense here in this letter to the churches in Galatia. When we are baptised into Christ, when by faith we allow that full immersion to happen, when we unite ourselves with him and allow his spirit to permeate our being, then we're like those vegetables, like the cucumbers that become pickles. There will be a permanent change in us. We exchange our filthy, dirty, sin-stained selves for the spotless righteousness of Christ. We put on his character and his actions like the vinegar soaking into those cucumbers. It doesn't happen instantly. It's a process that has to happen. His character should soak into our being so that the things that we speak about, the words that we use, the things that we do and the things that matter most to us are the things that Jesus would speak about, the things that Jesus would do and the things that would matter to Jesus. And no matter how fastidiously anyone might be able to keep the law, they will never be transformed by it. They will continuously be on this cycle of trying to work their way uh, into keeping the demands of the law. Only Jesus can bring about that sort of transformation and that work in us happens through his Holy Spirit. And when by faith we unite ourselves in this way with God, we become sons of God. All of us, males and females, young and old, rich, poor, educated, uneducated, Jew, Greek, Croatian, Bulgarian, Chinese, Japanese, whatever, criminal, non-criminal upstanding citizen whenever we decide by faith to unite ourselves with christ we become sons of god and when we become sons of god we become heirs with christ i become an heir to all that jesus is an heir to I, I share with him. That's how God sees me, and that's how we should see one another as joint heirs with Jesus. It's something like that change that happens for a child in the care of the state, who has spent a large part of their lifetime in foster care. When you're a child living in foster care, no matter what the foster family might do to try and make you feel as much a part of that family as they possibly can, and believe me, a great many foster families do a great deal to try and make the children in their care feel as much a part of the family as they can, but no matter how hard they try, There is this legal framework that surrounds a child in foster care and it is there for good reasons, but it makes it very hard for that child to feel like they truly belong. Even simple things like haircuts can be tricky. A family can take their biological child to get a haircut whenever they like. They can cut it however the child wants their haircut. But you can't do that with a child in foster care. You need to seek permission from the caseworker to take a foster child for a haircut. And the same applies to a whole host of simple things that most families don't give a second thought to giving medication. The child has a headache, you need to give them a panadol. You need permission for that going on a holiday, which school the child will attend, who can babysit, who can visit your own house, who can stay overnight in your house, and a whole host of other things, they all need approval. And then there's more complex issues like health insurance, uh, what happens if the foster parents should die? A biological child is automatically assumed to be an heir. A foster child is not. Parents can make arrangements with another family member for the care of their biological child should something happen to the parents, but the state will make decisions for a child in foster care, even if that child has been in care with that family for many years. As hard as many foster parents try, to treat all of their children equally, legally their biological children have a different status to their foster children. But all of that changes the day those children are adopted or in Australia the day that their permanent care order comes through. From that day on, there's no more uncertainty and their legal status instantly becomes equal to any other biological children in that family. That's what Paul is talking about here. That type of instant change. Or imagine taking a DNA test to find out a little bit more about your ancestry. And when the results come out overnight, you are transformed into a prince. That's exactly what happened to a man called Jay Speets in 2019. Jay was a pastor in America. And he was a descendant of slaves one day, and the next day he was a prince of a small African nation called Benin. When he received the results of his DNA test, he could hardly believe it. So he made some inquiries through the royal family in that small African nation. And Mr. Speets received this response from the English-speaking wife of the current king of Alada. She said, you are the, ki- the descendant of King Deka, the ninth king of Alada, who ruled from 1746 to 1765. And we will be delighted to welcome you home, dear prince. <laughs> so arrangements were made for Mr. Speets to travel to Benin, his ancestral home. Arriving at the airport, tired after 36 hours of travel, he was surprised to find large posters of himself decorating the airport and a crowd of several hundred outside, singing and dancing, waving signs in French, reading, welcome to the kingdom of Alada, the land of your ancestors. Overnight, his status changed, as does ours the moment that we put our faith in Christ. Many people think that all people are children of God, and whilst it's true, that we were all created in his image, we are only adopted as sons of God when we accept Jesus as our Lord and Saviour and put our faith in him. Paul goes on to tease out a little bit just what this change in status means and he uses the example of a child. And today we are familiar with this concept of a legal guardian or a trustee who's authorised to make decisions on behalf of a minor. In Australia, for example, the legal age of inheritance is 18. If a child inherits before that time, then the executor or a guardian or a trustee must hold the asset until the child turns 18. Or older, if an older age is specified in the will. And a similar situation existed in ancient times, with a minor being under guardians until the age of 14, and trustees having some form of oversight until the age of 25. In this respect, says Paul, a child is no different than a slave. Even though by rights he owns the estate, he's not free he remains subject to the guardians and the trustees. In chapter three, that guardian was identified as the law. And here in Galatians, he speaks to people who were not of Jewish background. So they weren't given the law. But he speaks to them of being under, or slaves to, the elementary principles of this world. Now, there's another phrase that we need to find out about. What what are the elementary principles of this world that were holding them in slavery? Well, an element is a basic principle. And the Greek word that's translated as elementary principles of this world, it can be translated in a number of ways. But primarily it refers to basic elements like the ABCs, you know, the alphabet. And it's been suggested that the ABCs being referred to here are the basic principles of cause and effect. And these principles, if you think about it, underlie most of the religions in the world, with the exception of Christianity. Basic principles of cause and effect. You do good, something good will happen. You do bad, bad's gonna happen. This was a principle that was understood by the Jews through the law. Obey the law, expect God's favor to fall upon you. Fail to obey the law, don't expect God to look favorably upon you but it was also understood by the pagans in that notion of you get what you deserve. And that is something that has carried through even to today. Most people would agree you get what you deserve. Didn't matter what your background was. These same basic principles applied in one form or another. And and these principles aren't wrong in many respects. Study hard and you will get a better mark than someone who doesn't study hard. Both students will get the mark that they deserve. Work hard and your efforts will usually be rewarded. Be careful with money and you're more likely to have more money available should you need it. Treat your customers well and they're more likely to return to you and build your business. Treat your customers poorly and you might have to shut up shop pretty quickly. You understand what I'm saying. We're all familiar with these principles and in general terms, yes, they hold true. They're not wrong. They apply to most things in life, just not to our relationship with God. Paul wanted the Galatians to understand that no one needed to be enslaved to these principles because with the coming of Christ, by faith, we don't get what we deserve. God doesn't operate on the basic principles of the world. He operates on the principle of grace. Under grace these elementary principles of earning or deserving something, they don't apply anymore. So no one can earn their salvation, nor does anyone deserve their salvation. It's a gift from God who by grace saw fit to send Jesus into this world for our sake. In a sense, Jesus was sent into the slave market to redeem those who were under slavery, to purchase our freedom. Only he could fulfill the standard of the law and by his perfect sacrifice, our ransom would be paid. And we are no longer slaves to sin and to these principles of cause and effect Neither of those apply to us anymore. We can rise above them, not because of anything that we have done, but because we have been freed by Christ from their effects, because we have been adopted as sons of God. Now, in the Greco-Roman world at the time, it was very important to have a male heir. Under Roman inheritance laws, as we've said, women had few rights. They had no rights of inheritance, and so it was important for reasons of succession and family legacy that there be a male heir. In the absence of a male heir, adoption afforded a means of guaranteeing succession, and so adoption was relatively common in the time. It was a means of preventing titles and estates from being forfeited, and it enabled the ties, ties to be forged um, between upper-class families through marriage. So adoption became common amongst upper-class families who did not have a male heir. The adoptee was always a person of lower social standing, often a servant in the family, And at the moment of their adoption as sons, their status completely changed. The adoptee would take on the name of the adoptive father and would have the same financial and legal privileges and the same inheritance rights as would have had a natural born son. This is what God has done for us. Through birth, we're slaves to sin. And this keeps us from having right relationship with the Father. Through Christ, we are not only freed, but we are adopted as sons and afforded all the same rights and privileges as would have a biological son. Because we are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our heart. John Stott explains it this way. God sent his son that we might have the status of sonship and he sent his spirit that we might have the experience of it. We are not our own. And that is a very, very good thing. The principles of cause and effect do not define who we are and neither does sin define who we are by faith in Jesus Christ and by the grace of God alone, we are no longer slaves to these things. We belong to the Lord because we have been adopted into his family. Our authority is in his name and it is by his spirit at work in us every day. More and more of that family resemblance should be evident in us as he works to make us more and more like Christ. Would you join me in prayer? Father, by your spirit, would you touch the hearts of any here who are not certain of their status as sons and heirs? If there are any who are still striving in their own effort, Lord, would you bring conviction to their hearts of their need for a saviour and of your great desire that all your children would come home. Amen.